Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, it's time to take care of business. Every week, we look at questions you, the listeners, have submitted and go through and unpack some of those real-life questions. How do we become more successful in what we do? It doesn't matter if you've got a job, if you're working for a company, if you're a contractor, a consultant, a contingency worker, an independent contractor, all those forms of realistic work that we've got out there. You can be an entrepreneur, you can be a temp, you can be a freelancer, you can be an electronic immigrant. Well, the work goes on, the words go on for work that we're doing today, whatever it is you deserve, I deserve to have work that's meaningful, fulfilling, purposeful, and profitable, I might add. Don't want to forget that. It doesn't have to be a compromise. We're going to look at how we can have work that is all of those things. Here's some of the things we're going to be talking about today. Dan, I really want to make my business work. Should I just give up sleeping? Now, there's a reasonable question. Uh, Dan, how do I get input from others without having them steal my best ideas? Can I teach the management principles of experts without copyright infringement? I just downgraded from a barely tolerable job. Now, listen, listen to this. This has got some great phrases in it. I'll share more when we get to the actual question. I just downgraded from a barely tolerable job in finance to a dreadful job in programming. A life sentence in a high rise tower of cubicles is most certainly not for me. <laughs> got some great terminology in there. We'll have some fun with that. I got a little movie clip with George Clooney. I want to play when we get to that particular question. And uh, someone says, any organizations that a person could be a member of to get a better price on health insurance? Yes, there sure are. Lots of them out there. I'll share some of those with you. Well, here's a quotation for us today to start things off. This comes from Cecil Beaton. Joanne and I were walking in the downtown street, Main Street in Franklin last Saturday night. And this was scribbled on a little chalkboard. I looked it up when I came home just to make sure that it was accurate, but it was, but it was really cool. Cecil Beaton says, be daring, be different, be impractical, be anything that will assert integrity of purpose and imaginative vision against the play it safers, the creatures of the commonplace, the slaves of the ordinary. Wow. Be daring, be different, be impractical against the vision of the play it safers, the creatures of the commonplace, the slaves, of the ordinary. Well, it's pretty clear which camp we want to be in. And I know that you as a listener of the 48 days online radio right here, want to be part of the former be daring, be different, impractical. So we're going to talk about some of the questions here and ways that we can do. In fact, that, well, this question comes from Ng, who says, Dan, I love your podcast. Thanks for the great work you're doing. Here's my question. My husband and I recently bought a home-based cruise franchise. My website is awesomeholidays.net. My husband is a student, and I also work full-time at an investment firm, and I have a very active three-year-old. I'm having a hard time dedicating time to my business. At the end of the day, I'm too tired to write a blog or think about my business. 
I really want to make this business work. Should I just give up sleeping? Well, no, don't give up sleeping. In fact, be well rested every day. I mean, I think that it's hard to be creative if you're not rested. I see people all over town, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon, they're yawning. I'm thinking, wow, why don't those people take a nap so they can come back refreshed and energized and ready to do good work? I don't think we can just slog through work that is creative and certainly not entrepreneurial if you're not well rested. So sleep eight hours a night. Don't apologize for that. Take a nap if you need to, but you're going to have to decide how you're going to use those precious 168 hours a week that we all have in order to make this work. How can you have a full-time job, a husband who's a student and be starting your own cruise business? It's going to be tough. You're going to have to make some sacrifices for a short period of time. And here's where I really want to be very specific. I think you can do anything for 90 days. I think you can do unrealistic things. You can sacrifice, you know, sleep time, watching TV time, going to church time, whatever for 90 days. But it should not be something that just goes on indefinitely. Thus, my advice would be, can you imagine your business being up and running, fully functional, profitable, providing the income that you need in 90 days? Now, really, I usually talk about a window from 90 to 180 days. That's three to six months. Now, you can do some scrimping and not doing things you would normally do in that period of time. Now, that doesn't mean scrimping on family time or sleep time, taking care of your health, But you may say no to committee meetings. You may say no to going to parties. You may say no to a lot of things for that 90 to 180 day window when you're getting your business up and running. But in that period of time, you've got to have the confidence that you can really make the swing so you then don't continue working full time and building a business. You're just building a business and nurturing the ongoing successful running of it at that point. That's how I would approach it. Yes, you do not have to give up sleeping. And yes, you can build a successful business. Well, Sean says, I graduated 11 years ago with a BS in industrial technology with a focus on design drafting. I wanted to be a drafter, but I could also supposedly be considered for other positions such as industrial engineering, production engineer, production planner, many other things. After being laid off from my first job, I've gone through many unrelated jobs over the past 10 years, such as truck driving and mortgage broker. I'm frustrated when I do a job search in my field due to the lack of companies looking for someone with my degree. And when I do find one, I don't have the required experience. Do you know any ways I can position myself from a job in my field or is my degree too old? Should I move on to something that might better fit me? Well, Sean, I'm I'm just going to be really cut to the chase on this. Your degree is not too old. I mean, it really doesn't matter. I mean, I, I graduated from the Ohio State University so many years ago. I mean, we didn't even know what computers were. We were using chalkboards and chalk almost that bad. Could I get a degree or could I get a job today in computer programming or in web design? Well, if I showed somebody what I was able to do and showed them productive work I've done in the last six months, sure I can. I mean, the degree 10, 11 years ago doesn't mean squat. What people want to know is what can you do? What have you done? What can you show us that you can do? Now, it doesn't even matter that you had uh, jobs that are unrelated to this area, but you better have something in that area, design drafting, where you can show productive 
effective, compelling work. If you can do that, it doesn't matter what your work history is, how old you are, or when you got your degree. So the bottom line is, it's not the degree that companies are rejecting. For whatever reason, you simply have not sold yourself to these companies as somebody that they want to have on their team. If you're somebody they want to have on their team, they'll overlook, you could get a, have a degree in English literature or political science because of things that you're likely required to do, you can learn quickly. So the real question is, why aren't companies saying, boy, here's a guy that we want to have on our team. So look at your interviewing skills. Make sure that you're coming across with energy and a lot of optimism, but make sure that you really do have realistic things to offer in this particular arena as well. So you aren't just blowing smoke and mirrors, but companies hire people. They don't hire degrees or expertise. They hire people. So make sure that you come across as someone that they want to have on your team and you'll find the opportunities will be there regardless of how old your degree is. Steve from Pasadena says, how do you market research for a new product without giving away your idea? I'm not afraid to tell people about my ideas, but when I start asking the general public, there are too many people who would try to copy it. Steve, you're wrong. It just isn't so. I mean, nobody cares about your idea as much as you do. People are busy. You can share that you have the next best hula hoop or Frisbee or iPhone application. It doesn't matter. Share your ideas. There's way more risk in not sharing your idea and depriving yourself of the valuable feedback that you'll get. Then there is risk of having somebody else take your idea and do something with it. Now, I mean, really, I want to hammer this point across because this is so common. It's a great question. I commend you for asking it, but you absolutely are distorting reality. I mean, I I had a couple come in, this has been a couple years ago, and they had an idea and it was a phenomenal idea. It was a great idea. It was a breathable baby mattress. Oh my gosh, I just shared their idea. Well, are 10 of you going to go develop that? No, that's not going to happen. I mean, there has to be research done. You have to get suppliers for the right kind of fabric. You have to understand what that is. If you're going to promote it as a breathable baby mattress, you're going to have regulatory companies looking over your shoulder. It takes a lot of work to actually come up with a product, but they had much the same feeling as you. I mean, they were almost afraid to share it with me. I mean, I didn't share it with anybody else and it's long past the opportune time for that anyway, but breathable baby mattresses, I turned around clicked on my computer, I found 1,520,000 sites that are dealing with the concept of breathable baby mattress. Are they the first person to ever think about it or ever research it or try to do something? I don't think so. Here's what I tell people. I mean, most people put way too much emphasis on developing their product and idea or protecting it, not nearly enough on marketing. Now, I don't know what your idea is, and you don't have to share it with me, but 2% of your challenge is protecting your idea, making sure nobody else can get it through having a copyright, a trademark, or patent. 2% of your challenge, 8% of your challenge is determining, is it a valid idea or product? 
I mean, you can protect square wooden wheels. That would be unique and novel, not something other people are doing, but there's probably not a market for it. So 2% is protecting your idea. 8% is determining, is it a valid idea? What are we left with? 2% and 8%, that's 10%. If we're going to 100%, 90% of your challenge is what is your marketing plan? That's what determines if an idea is going to be successful or not. So don't get hung up on the 2%. Don't get hung up on protecting your idea. That is such a small part of determining whether or not you're going to be successful. So if you want to develop a new gear system for bicycles, I talked to somebody this week about that. I mean, that's a very cool thing. A lot of opportunity there. Some of the things that are being used are really antiquated. It's old technology. There ought to be better systems. But if you want to do that, I mean, that's fine. But again, 2%. Protect your idea, 8% determining, is there a real need for it out here? 90%. How are you going to get people's attention? I mean, when somebody came out with the cliff bar, you know, an athlete who recognized there were not really good options for serious athletes, you know, he developed that. Have other people tried to develop a great nutritional bar? Oh, about a million people probably. But I mean, he focused on the athletic crowd did unique marketing in providing bars and things back when my son was racing professional bicycle racing and he would get cliff bars. Well, he spread the word. That's exactly what they use for their marketing. And it made cliff bar a very respected, very profitable team in a whole host of players. So those are the issues that'll make you successful. Now I got one book that I do want to recommend for you. If you've got an idea of any kind, and you want to develop and you don't want to know how to do that without sharing your idea, without giving it away, and maybe even how to get it licensed where you don't have to go through the manufacturing process. Get Stephen Key's book, One Simple Idea. One Simple Idea. Now just go to Amazon, search for it, One Simple Idea, Stephen Key. That is the best book for how to take an idea and turn it into real income. So I would encourage you to do that. Hey, just a note, just to remind you, you're listening to Dan Meller on the 48 Days Online radio show each week. We take questions from you, the listeners. Hey, if you got a question you want to submit, I'd be happy to consider it for an upcoming show. Just go to the 48days.com site, click on the podcast link, you'll see a little form pop up there. You can submit your question. Love to hear from you. I love every week this time where I go in and open up that email file and go through all the wonderful questions that you all send in the real life questions that you're dealing with out there. Parrish says, Dan, I'm I dream of quitting my dead end job and making art for a living, but I feel stuck where I am and find it difficult to make a plan. Ideally, I want to build my income around sculpture and mural painting, but I'm at a loss for how to get there. I've read 48 days and no more Mondays, but I still have questions. Number one, I don't want to overcharge for my work, but I don't want to just keep guessing whether I could or should be asking for more. I need to be able to eat to cover my expenses, but I also want to grow my studio. How do I determine prices starting out? Let me just jump in there for a minute and address that. How do you determine prices in something as subjective as art? Well, you price your art at what people are willing to pay. And when you have more commissioned work than you can produce, then you increase your prices. And I started out doing a 90 minute coaching session. 
for, I think I was doing that for like $75. Might've even been less than that. Now that I think about it a long time ago, but let's say $75. Well, if I don't have anybody waiting to come in, then I better just keep doing that. But what if I've got 20 people standing in line saying, you know, pick me, pick me. Well, then obviously I can increase those prices, which is exactly what I, I have done over the years. Obviously at this point, you know, the coaching, the only coaching that I do still is the Eagles club. It's $4,500 for two hour sessions. I mean, I, I've spoken hundreds of times for free to establish myself. And now the speakers bureau that I'm listed with, you know, they list me at a $10,000 for a keynote presentation. You don't get there overnight, but you get there by doing the things that show that you have value to bring. And when you show that value and other people start talking about it and say, wow, you need one of these guys pieces. You need to have him do the mural on the side of your building. Then you can in fact, charge more, but just get in the game. The big thing is to get in the game. Don't stand back and say, well, my fee is, you know, $20,000 to do that. And nobody ever has you do anything. We don't build a reputation like that. So if you have to do it for $2,000, then do it. So you get some exposure out there. Now, your other question here is other than making a website and trying to sell over the internet, how can I position my art for greater visibility and or chance of selling it? Well, I think sculpting and doing mural art, I think selling over the internet is going to be a secondary form of marketing. Yeah, you probably need an internet site just to establish yourself and have a point of connection for people, but people are going to have to see your work and that's going to have to be the primary method of marketing. So, you know, pricing your art is more art than science. It's not based on your age, your length of time in business, or frankly, it's not even based on your ability. It'll be determined more by your success in, you know, getting people excited about what you're doing, making people convinced it's something that they really want to have. I mean, we've got a friend who's an artist who she teaches an art class here in the sanctuary every Wednesday morning, but she just did a large mural for the London Olympics. They're going to start next month in London. The Olympics, it's going to be on buses and on billboards and all kinds of things. That's a pretty cool thing for her to get that kind of exposure to her art. I mean, look for opportunities to do a theme for a local event. Check out my buddy, Scott Stearman. Scott lives out in Woodland Park, Colorado, up in the mountains, but he's a sculptor. He does only commissioned work. He sculpts in bronze. Amazing process. His little studio down in a valley, right by a little stream that runs by. It's just an amazing little place. He creates the models there. And then, of course, they're cast to get the bronze sculpture. But then he has the potential of duplicating those as well. But Scott Stearman, S-T-E-A-R-M-A-N, just search for him. It'll come right up at scottsteerman.com. Friend of mine, you can ask him questions if you want to about how he got started. I love the kind of things you're talking about. You know, I, I'm a big believer in the creative arts and the things that we all can do that can't easily be duplicated by somebody else. I mean, if you can sculpt and do murals, well, you put yourself in a really small category. It's easier to set yourself apart in doing something remarkable than when you're doing something that could easily be duplicated by somebody else. I mean, the more you're doing something remarkable, yeah, the more you put yourself into a small category and move up financially. I mean, if you know how to, you know, put canned goods in a plastic bag, 
those skills can be easily learned by somebody else standing right behind you. But if you're doing brain surgery, yeah, it takes a lot of time and experience and expertise and special talent to be able to do that. That puts you in a smaller category. Well, Dave says, uh, Dan, I've been listening to the podcast for a few months now. This is another art related one. I got a, a couple here. Um, I've been listening to the podcast for a few months now. I'm a visual artist and a minister speaker. I pastor a small church, work a full-time day job. I've created a program combining fast paintings done live combined with stories, video, and drama. I also do workshops designed to help people find and use their gifts to serve God and others, as well as more conventional preaching combined with live art. When I do this type of thing, I feel like I'm doing what I was created to do. I'm building a platform with blogging and social media and live appearances. The problem is I'd love to do it full time, but I've had difficulty earning enough at it to make a living. Could you suggest a model that might make it more lucrative? I went to your website, Dave. I love the kind of stuff you're doing there. And I love this whole concept. This fast art is something that's really become popular. And just this week I was doing a little research because we want to, we want to expose, we want to give, um, Kind of marketing exposure to people who are doing creative things like you're doing in getting ready to release my next book, wisdom meets passion. We're finding all kinds of people who do really amazing things like you're describing. There's a young guy named David Garibaldi who does an upside down Jesus painting in two minutes. He just starts, you know, with music, throwing paint up there and boom, you know, you don't have any idea what it is. Two minutes. And then all of a sudden he flips the thing upside down. It's like, oh my goodness, there's the face of Jesus that he does. Uh, there's another guy, Mike Lewis, who's known as a Jesus painter. He'll set up a big, a big uh, piece of plywood or screen canvas in a busy city street in New York City. And he'll just start painting away there. And again, in like five minutes, you, you know, you're seeing shapes and whatever, and it's okay, whatever he's doing. He's an artist who knows what it's supposed to mean. And then in like 30 seconds, he puts eyes in it and his face emerges. Jesus face, Mike Lewis. You can look both these guys up. Their work is on YouTube. It's easy to see, but I've been looking at stuff like that and uh, it's amazing, but I think you're going to have to find opportunities to do this other than just showing up for church programs and showing up for church programs is a very limited opportunity. I mean, certainly you I'm sure got a good message, you know, it's kind of preaching storytelling, but you know, when you go through all the limitations you're going to have with people knowing, wanting to know if you line up denominationally, theologically with the way they are and then giving up time and then uh, God forbid that they would have to pay you something. I mean, that's a tough market. Look for opportunities where you can do high school events or college events or community events where you're message isn't going to be, you know, just so specifically Christian that you can't get in a lot of places, but you know, use your talent in that area to get opportunities for street fairs and events where you get exposure for what you do, where you may even be able to, I mean, I worked with a, a, a couple actually, but the guy Lee Lentz is his name years ago and he would do magic at like kids birthday shows. Well, that's cool. You know, but it's really tough. You know, you get a hundred bucks here, a hundred bucks there. It's really tough to put those enough together to make any sense. But we worked on some ideas today. Lee does product introductions at major exhibitions. I mean, he get, I think he gets 15,000 bucks a day at this point, but he does product demonstrations. 
using magic with that. I mean, his, his shows are just phenomenal. He has a crowd standing wherever he goes and that's how he books himself. He didn't compromise his heart and his message, but he shaped it in a way that had more commercial application. I think that's what you're going to have to do. This question comes from Bill. This is kind of an insurance question. Bill says, Dan, I'm a PC insurance producer. It's property and casualty auto home, but I'm getting tired of the nine to five in the office setting. Very competitive. Although I've grown my agency, make decent money. Residual income is nice, but I've recently become a business broker on the side with a company headquartered in Brentwood, Tennessee. We list and sell businesses all over commission only, but great upside potential. This seems to be a very lucrative opportunity. So what is your feeling on this type of business versus the insurance I am also doing? I'm 45 years old, wife, two children. I want this biz brokerage to be my future. God bless Bill. Well, Bill, thanks for your question. I mean, there's no right or wrong about which of these that you choose. I mean, PNC insurance is a long respected business, but if you're ready to move on, here's how I usually encourage people to approach us. If you're ready to move on, don't just jump into business brokerage because you heard about this one company in Brentwood, Tennessee, and that's so it looks like something it would be okay to do. No, come up with 20 ideas, business brokering being one of those. I mean, force yourself to come up with a long list of ideas, filter those through what you know about yourself. I mean, when I work with somebody in coaching, I want to create a filter by which we can measure any opportunity that we look at. I want to know what are your unique skills and talents? What are your personality characteristics? How do you relate to other people? What kind of environments do you thrive in? How do you manage, sell, persuade? Those are things we want to know. So we want to know your skills and abilities, your personality tendencies, and then number three, your values, dreams, and passions. What are those things that just keep popping up times when you find yourself in the zone it's just like oh my gosh this really makes my heart sing this is what i was born to do so we look at those three things together and start to see trends emerge that creates a filter then we can take those 20 ideas whatever they are and we can start to filter them through yeah this is a great idea for somebody else you know having a subway franchise how to selling franchise out there that's cool but that would violate my desire to be at home with my family on the evenings and weekends. I don't want to have to work with entry level employees. I don't want to have to be, be putting in that many hours in a business. that's very time and labor intensive, you know, so we move on to the next idea, but that's how you do it. Understand yourself. 85% of the process is looking inward to understand who you are, how you're wired uniquely, what makes you remarkable. Then we can throw all these ideas up against that and see what emerges. So if in doing that, a business brokerage with this company here makes sense. Absolutely. That's fine. Just compare it to other things. First, if it rises to the top, then do it with excellence. Be remarkable in that industry. You know, I, th I think we should all have a monopoly in what we do now in saying that, I mean, obviously that doesn't mean that there's no one else in the same industry or the same business or even in the same company, but what is it? that a customer gets in dealing with you that they can't get any other place in the world. That's your monopoly. What is it about an experience with you that a customer or client is going to get that they can't get anywhere else in the world? We all ought to be able to ask ourselves that and come up with a question or, or an answer to that. 
what is that experience that makes you remarkable? What is it that makes me remarkable as a coach? What is it that makes you remarkable as a salesperson? What is it that makes you remarkable as a teacher or a mom or a pastor or whatever it happens to be? What is it that makes you remarkable? Figure that out. Hang your head on that. Let other people know about that. That's one of your claims to fame and your little monopoly and rightfully so. David from Kansas says, I'm currently building a website centered around my years in retail management. I wish to use the website as a platform with which to blog, consult, and speak. You've stated several times before that success principles are transferable. The same applies to management principles. Absolutely. While writing the ebook I plan to give away for joining my email list, I discovered that I had several aspects of my book that were being taught by other management experts. One in particular I used regularly and found it to be spectacularly effective. I want to include this aspect of effective management in my book, but fear it is essentially copying what is being taught by other management consultants. They frame this aspect as being their creation. Do you have any ideas on how to proceed? Thanks for all you do and the impact you've had in my life. Well, thanks for your question, David. When we, yes, you're right. Success principles are transferable. Management principles are as well. It is impossible to protect and claim a management principle or success principle as uniquely your own. Now you can trademark a phrase if you want to, but you cannot claim it. It's like, you know, bottling air. Well, goodness knows somebody will figure that out. I mean, who would have thought we would be paying for water a few years ago and yet people spend millions of dollars on water. So certainly somebody will probably package air and claim it to be a unique variety of air. But if, if we take what you're talking about, I mean, Stephen Covey, how many people have used his principles in developing their own management training? I mean, begin with the end in mind, sharpen the saw, seek first to understand, then be understood. I mean, those, those are principles that are timeless. Those weren't originated with Stephen Covey, but he framed them in a way that were memorable. They're easy to, easy to bring to mind, just like I just did there. But that doesn't mean you can't use those things. You could write a book, sharpen the saw. If you want to, you can have that be the foundational piece in a management training program that you do where it's important to prepare before you engage with the client or start in the project, whatever. I mean, John Maxwell, his big thing is leadership. He says leadership is based on authenticity. Wow. Could I develop a management program based on being authentic? Absolutely. I mean, Zig Ziglar, I mean, how many times have, have I and thousands of others used his principle? You can get anything in life you want if you help enough other people get what they want. Management principles cannot be protected. Truth is readily available for anyone who wants it. So no, you're not stepping on any toes there. Now, if you're plagiarizing by lifting writing that these guys have done and using it in your own materials. That's, that's plagiarism. That's copyright infringement. That's another thing entirely, but the principles themselves modify them, make them your own and go on and be successful with those. The people who were more famous for those principles will do nothing but applaud you in the background. I mean, Tony Robbins, Tony Robbins, I better get off this horse here because I, I love this arena. I love this whole concept that you're talking about. Tony Robbins, 
and the guy's a bazillionaire with the things that he's done. His work is based on modeling. See somebody that's doing something successful and model what they're doing. I mean, how complicated is that? He's known as being connected with NLP, neuro linguistic programming. Did he invent that? Heavens no. It was available for hundreds of years before Tony Robbins made it pretty popular NLP, but he just borrowed the principles that other people had talked about and were using successfully and made it his own. I mean, I don't know of anything, and this is not a a knock on Tony at all. I love his material, but I don't, I don't know of anything that he does or talks about that was uniquely original with him. He's a master at taking the things, the success principles that he's seen work with other people. I mean, that really is the underlying basis of his whole philosophy in teaching us other people to do the same thing. Find people whose principles are successful for them, model those. You can do the same in what you're doing. Well, Dave says, Dan, I have a question for you. You talk about not using job boards or recruiters as a focus of your job search. And I agree, but what if you're not doing a full on search, but merely interested in keeping up with what's out there? I'm generally pleased with my current job, but sometimes wonder what other opportunities are available. I'm not actively searching, but would consider something new if the right situation presented itself. Are boards and recruiters viable options for keeping an eye on the job market while also focusing on my existing job. Yes, absolutely. You I mean, use anything you want to use job boards and magazines, news releases to stay informed. Then when you want to do an actual job search, then move into the methods that I lay out in 48 days, identify 30 to 40 companies that could be a potential match, contact them. That's where you're going to find that 87% of the jobs that are in the hidden job market. So that's where you make the distinction. But just in terms of kind of keeping yourself on the radar screen, you know, and knowing what's going on. Sure. I mean, what you're talking about is perfectly fine. Nothing wrong with that at all. Hey, this is John Tesh, host of Intelligence for Your Life, and you're listening to my good buddy, Dan Miller. You know, finding your purpose and passion is the first step to living out intelligence in your own life. 48 days can show you the way. Now back to Dan. Now here's an interesting question. Let's see. This comes from uh, Randy, who said from in Michigan, listening to your discussions on degrees and jobs during 2012 has inspired me to help others who are depressed. I have so now, no boy. Here, here's a a pail with no bottom. L- listen to this. I have so many friends and acquaintances who recently graduated with degrees in business and feel they're overpaid for a feel they've overpaid for a fancy piece of paper. Some have applied to over a hundred jobs and experienced over 10 interviews this spring with nothing to show for it, except of course, for more, except for more interview experience. As a result, most of them have accepted low paying jobs, some even minimum wage that have nothing to do with their passions. They have bills to pay. So I respect them for this. Unfortunately, most of them have become negative and bitter in the process saying things like this economy has ruined my future. Now I'm stuck. I'd like to encourage them to not give up, but where do I start with young adults who already feel so defeated? Well, Randy, well, you got your work cut out for you there because you had a whole host of people. We're, we're talking about the gen Y gen generation Y includes those who are 17 to 32 years old. There's 75 million of them, 75 million. This is the big surge in this younger generation. 
coming into the workplace? Well, for the first thing, I would um, suggest you just welcome them to this wonderful thing called life. Now, let me give you a little bit of background here. You know, a couple, a few days ago, there was a, I think it was a Massachusetts English, English teacher who gave a speech to a graduating class that essentially says, you're not that special. I mean, it was, it's hilarious how much attention this speech is getting. I mean, he's been on all the primary news stations, but you just search for it. You'll, you'll find it, you know. Okay. Right here. I've got a little bit of it. The, the guy's name is David McCullough. Each of you is dressed, you'll notice exactly the same in your diploma, but for your name is exactly the same. All of this is as it should be because none of you is special. You're not special. You're not exceptional. And he goes on and talks about, you know, there's what, 34,000 high schools across the country. That means there were 34,000 valedictorians. If you're one of those, you're still in a small group. You're not special. And he goes through, you know, we've pampered and baby kids so much and given them all blue ribbons, even if they screwed up. And he's saying, you know what? The real world isn't going to point you out, hold you up, put you on a platter. Um, He says, "If, if you've learned anything in your years here, I hope it's that education should be for rather than material advantage, the exhilaration of learning. You've learned too, I hope, as that wisdom is the chief element of happiness. I also hope you've learned enough to recognize how little you know, how little you know now at that moment for today is just the beginning. It's where you go from here that matters. Now, again, we want to encourage everyone, but there's a whole lot of people coming into the workplace who have totally unrealistic expectations of what they're going to get if they have that little college degree paper in their hand and think that the world owes them an $80,000 a year position. Yeah, there's a lot of them going to be disappointed because the world just doesn't work in that kind of magical formula. Here are some things that are happening in this Gen Y, though, in terms of work trends. I mean, there are closed door meetings going on in Washington, D.C. and other places around the country right now with companies who are scared to death about this young generation that's coming into the workplace. They don't have the work ethic that their mom and dad had, or grandma and grandpa had. They don't have the sense of responsibility I mean, we know the average job tenure for somebody in their 20s right now is 13 months. I mean, golly, they come to work. Yeah, all full of vim and vigor and going to do a great job. And then, geez, they hear there's great skiing in Breckenridge, Colorado. Boom, they're out of here. They go ski. They'll wait tables out there. Who cares? They may come back and work another job for six or seven months. That's what companies are seeing. Walmart, the world's biggest employer. Walmart says they can hire these kids all day long. You know, they can hire them, pay a minimum wage or a little bit more. They're happy. Boom. Then you identify somebody who yeah, is really doing a pretty exceptional job. They do show up on time. They're considerate with customers. They're uh, caring about relationships with others. And so we say, Hey Tom, you know, you're 21 years old, man, you're doing a great job here. We've seen your work ethic. We're going to make you department head. Now we're going to have you responsible for this whole department. And Tom says, Hey, that's cool. No, thanks. I don't want that. They don't want the responsibility, even if it looks like a promotion and more money. They're more interested in the relationships than they are in an upward career path. And companies are saying, are you kidding me? How how are we going to find new leaders? These people are saying, nah, I just want to hang with my friends. You know, give them a little spending money, pocket money. I'm cool with that. I don't care about having a Mercedes and a big house. Anyway, I don't want the responsibility. Here's another factor that scares 
corporate America to death. 72% of college students say they want to have their own business. They don't want to work for anyone else. So companies are saying, why would we invest time and energy in these kids when we know that, you know, 13 months from now, they aren't going to be here anyway. So it works both ways. I mean, these, these kids coming into the workplace who aren't finding these glorious opportunities where companies are just thrilled to have them show up. That's not unexpected. Companies know the reality of what's probably going to happen down the road with these kids. These kids have not presented themselves in a great way to be valued employers. It's going to take individual performance to break the overall expectations of Gen Y coming into the workplace. Now, so what do you do to encourage them? I mean, discuss those things with them. What are they going to do to make themselves remarkable? What are they going to do to really make themselves stand out? Now, here's an actual situation. I did a Skype presentation just a few days ago with a group of high school kids. I don't remember where they were, California, Pennsylvania. I don't know. Do a lot of stuff like that. Anyway, it was a class. So I could see the class. They could see me. And the teacher then had prepared questions for me. And one of the questions was, you know, what do we have to do to go out and do an interview, you know, to get a job? I mean, I looked at the group I was looking at. I thought, are you serious? You know, if any of you walked out of from this room to get a job interview, I mean, I sure wouldn't hire you. And I don't know anybody that would. And you know what? There was a kid sitting right in the front row that had a chicken hat on. Now, this is a high school class. He had, it was like a knit hat, one of those stocking caps pulls down over the side. So it had a long, and then it had ears and a beak up on top. It was a chicken hat. And they're sitting there asking me what to do in an interview so that somebody gives them a job. And I said, well, to start with, don't wear a chicken hat. Well, they all laughed and the guy was embarrassed and pulled his hat off because he knew I could see him. But I mean, it's amazing to me how ridiculous even the way some people show up in personal appearance and then they're upset because nobody gives them a job. You don't have to wear a suit and tie, but my goodness, if you're going to be taken seriously as a candidate for any kind of a position, present yourself as being neat, sharp, energetic, alert, awake. I mean, some of those kind of common things that we would look for. Adam says, Okay, now th- this is the one where we got all this terminology that I absolutely love. I'm 28, Adam said, I'm 28, feel like a car stuck in the mud. I have reread your books and listened to each podcast. I'm a high C designer who just downgraded from a barely tolerable job in finance to a dreadful job in programming all for a 30% pay increase. Not a strategic move. A life sentence in a high rise tower of cubicles is certainly not for me. I've considered opening a shop, a restaurant on the beach, real estate classes at the seminary, retail management, yet cubicle life continues. Some of the problem is from analysis paralysis and a lack of funds. We just paid off $35,000 debt in one year. Awesome. Jeez. But I still don't know, don't know what I want to do when I grow up. How can I escape a cubicle for a happy, fulfilling life? I'm stuck in mud after years of seeking independent, flexible work. You know, I, I just did an interview the other day and we referenced the movie up in the air. Remember that movie with George Clooney who played the employment guy and he went around to kind of soften the blow as people were losing their jobs. Well, I love that. The idea that came across. I want to play you a little clip 
from that. Now, again, we're talking about Adam's question here. 28 feels like he's stuck in the mud. All these things he dreams about doing and yet he's stuck in cubicle world, just traded a barely tolerable job to a, for a dreadful job and has this life sentence in a high rise tower of cubicles. Certainly not for me. All right, let me play you this clip. Now this is George Clooney. You'll recognize his voice. He's meeting with a guy who's just been informed that he's, that he's lost his job. He was making $90,000 a year. Now, now some of the language is a little raw in here, but tolerate it. I want you to hear the, hear the point of this. Your children's admiration is important to you. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Well, I doubt they ever admired you, Bob. Hey, asshole, aren't you supposed to be consoling me? I'm not a shrink, Bob. I'm a wake-up call. You know why kids love athletes? Oh, because they screw lingerie models. No, that's why we love athletes. Kids love athletes because they follow their dreams. Well, I can't dunk. No, but you can cook. What are you talking about? Your resume says that you minored in French culinary arts. Most students, they're working the fryer at KFC, but you bust tables at Il Picador to support yourself. And then you get out of college, and you come and you work here. How much did they first pay you to give up on your dreams? 27 grand a year. And when were you going to stop and come back and do what makes you happy? question i see guys who work at the same company for their entire lives guys exactly like you they clock in they clock out and they never have a moment of happiness you have an opportunity here bob this is a rebirth now if not for you do it for your children how much did they pay you to give up on your dreams to walk away from your dreams. Oh yeah, that, that'll, that'll preach, so to speak. How many people are sitting in jobs, in cubicles with that underlying theme? How much did they pay you to walk away from your dreams? I mean, I encounter people all the time who had dreams as young people. Gee, I wanted to do something in sports. Gee, I wanted to be a golfer. I wanted to do something outside working with my hands. And yet, they followed the path of least resistance in many ways, even though it may lead to something that has a reasonable salary that's then allowed other things in life. It doesn't have to be. Here's another Stephen Covey principle that I steal. We talked about that a minute ago. Can you talk about management principles? Well, here's another one from Covey that I use regularly. Look for and solutions rather than either or. Instead of saying, well, either I am stuck in this cubicle and hate it, or I do something I love and don't make any money. Why would you think that's the choice? Why not expect to do something you really love and make more money? I mean, when we're doing something that we love, it unleashes the very best in us. Doing the very best that we have to offer should very logically lead to more rewards in every way, including financial rather than less. Don't think that it works the other way around. Well, we've got a lot more questions here. Thanks for being with us on the 48 days online radio show. This is where we do take care of business, get involved. You know, a lot of what I see is just people sitting on the sidelines, get in the game. 
You find your passion, you find wisdom, you find your purpose and calling by being involved in things. You get wisdom by being in situations where you make poor decisions and you get better. Jump into 48days.net, check out our resources, upcoming events. I'd love to meet you. This is Dan Miller, your host. Thanks for being part of this crew that is finding or creating work that is meaningful, fulfilling, purposeful, and profitable.